Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of Daily Each Investing Show. And today, I had Theodore Van Kerwin, who's the CFP Chief uh, Certified Financial Plan. Why do they keep saying Chief? Chief Executive Officer. Never mind. Certified uh, Financial Planner. And Brad, he explained how you can be a financial uh, planner, financial advisor too. He's been on my podcast before. He's talked about how you can get started in fasting. And I hope you enjoy that show as well. It's somewhere uh, down there. Just scroll down and you can check that one out as well. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, so Mr. Van Kerven, what do you think makes a good financial planner? What do you think makes you or anybody who's in the financial planning industry a good financial planner? Yeah, so there's a lot of different skill sets that go along with being a financial advisor and financial planner. And I think it's important to kind of distinguish the different terms. I think a financial advisor and a financial planner share a lot of the same skill sets. But a financial planner is really focused on helping people identify what their goals are and then helping them achieve those goals, which often includes financial products or investments. And so they're traditionally, you know, financial advisors have been more of kind of product salesmen where they're selling a product that happens to coincide with financial advice. And in the last, I'd say 10 to 20 years, that's been changing where now financial advisors, or if you want to call them financial planners, are more advice centric and that that's where the starting point is. And then if there are investment or financial products that, that help solve the goal, then you can use them if needed. And so I think the good, the, what a good characteristic of a good financial advisor is, is that they are advice centric. So that means that they're typically just charging a fee for their services and they're just trying to help their clients make the best financial decisions based on the unique needs of that individual. And so um, you have to have the right incentives built into how you're compensated so that you're not trying to sell products that maybe somebody doesn't actually need and that it really is the best thing for them. So there's a difference between a financial advisor and a financial planner? I would say yes. I mean, anybody that manages money for somebody, you can call yourself a financial planner, but if you're actually managing money for somebody, you're really a wealth manager and and or a financial advisor and all these terms are kind of in the same vein i would say that people that hold themselves out as financial planners um, tend to be more advice focused advice centric and that the investment side of things is more of a secondary uh to what they do and i think that's kind of where the industry is, is shifting and so in my mind there's a distinction between financial planner and financial advisor but i don't know if necessarily you would see that distinction as much across the industry. And how do you find clients as a financial planner? Because if you do, if you're just starting out, or if it's just your first year in, you know, being a financial planner, you're probably not going to find clients immediately. So, how do you manage to find clients? And you like need to like work for a, a, a financial practice before you start your own practice or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's a first of all, there's a lot of steps that go into if you want to start your own. Um, so what I had, 
So what I have is what's called an RA, a registered investment advisor. And so what that means is that I'm actually registered with the state of Massachusetts as an investment advisor um, with my firm, Modern Wealth Builders LLC. But to even do that, you have to have either certain licenses or certain designations. The CFP happens to be one of the designations that actually you can use um, uh, interchangeably instead of the Series 7 and Series 66, which are um, financial securities licenses, which, which I actually used to have. Um, but so most people are not independent financial advisors like myself. Like most people work for a um, either a bigger firm, whether it's like kind of a traditional, uh, they call them broker dealers. So if you think of like the Ameriprises, the Raymond James, LPL, uh, and then there's also what they call they're called wirehouses like um, you know, Merrill Lynch and kind of these bigger traditional brokerage firms where it's a corporation and you work for the corporation and you are either an employee of the corporation or you might have your own uh, practice within the corporation, but you're still um, using their technology. Um, you know, they're helping you with compliance and a lot of different things. And so. Uh, there's a lot of different routes and I actually I used to work for the broker in the broker dealer space before I went independent on my own um, but there's a lot of, a lot of different avenues you can go to get started in the industry but I would say most people do not start in the fee only RIA space which is what I'm in now most people start in a more um, uh, sales oriented and especially uh, role for a corporation so it's, it's kind of, it gets kind of complicated. Um, I mean, I obviously know my path and I, a lot of people went down a similar path as me, but there's, a, people have a lot of different avenues uh, to getting into this business. Wait, so what is Series 7 and Series 65? Are they like licenses or something? Yeah, so if you want to sell a commission product, so if you get compensated for any kind of commission, so the way uh, it's still being done this way in a lot of places, but uh, historically you would sell like a mutual fund or uh, maybe an insurance product. Well, let's just stick with security. So if you were selling a mutual fund, in order to sell a mutual fund or any kind of stock or ETF, you need to have your Series 7 and that's uh, it's your securities license. It makes you what's called a registered representative of a, of a, of a brokerage firm. And... Um, so that's different than being like we talk when we talk about fee-only financial advisors. Um, that's kind of the other side of the um, industry. And so when you first get in the business, again, a lot of it's still commission-oriented for uh, new people getting into the industry. And so m- the first thing I got when I got into the industry was my Series Seven, followed by my. And then Series sixty-six is for um, if you want to be able to charge a fee for your advice, you have to have your Series sixty-six. And so I got that. Then I got my insurance license, uh, and you got to get your insurance license if you want to sell insurance. <laughs> and then if you want to sell annuities, especially variable annuities, you have to have both your securities and your insurance license. Um, but then I actually, when I went to the RIA space, which I, which I was talking about, which is the fee-only fiduciary, you just get compensated a flat fee. Um, I actually got rid of my licenses because you, you actually, um, yeah. So I got I got it for nothing basically. Um, because you don't need your series seven if you're if you're not selling uh, commission products um, and so and also the CFP in the state of Massachusetts also um, works 
interchangeably instead of having your seven and sixty-six. So there, it gets again, it gets complicated. But that's that's kind of the basics. And then, and then, like when you're posting on Instagram, and uh, let's say like I'm posting on Instagram, and I make a post about say Apple stock getting hit by the trade war, and I've got to put that this is not financial advice in the caption. So number one, I always wonder why do you have to do that? Is there, do you like need a license to actually like give financial advice or something? Oh yeah. <laughs> so I so there's you're either regulated by your state or by the SEC, and it's dependent on your assets under management. So once you hit a hundred million of assets under management, you're you are uh, over overseen by the SEC. I don't have a hundred million of assets under management, so I uh, am overseen by the state of Massachusetts, and so I have compliance regulations that I have to adhere to, where I have to documenting certain things I have to be archiving certain things I have to be uh, there's a lot of compliance things that you have to do to stay in compliance with the state of Massachusetts and what will happen is they have regulatory audits and so they'll actually come to your workplace and you have to provide them whatever information they want and obviously you have to be adhering to their their rules and regulations and so you know when you see advisors say, you know, this is for informational purposes only, or what those kind of disclaimers, it's because when you start talking about investment related things, you have to be very careful to speak generally, not use um, past performance or uh, because anytime you're saying, you know, anytime you have an indication of, hey, this is what somebody has done with their investment portfolio, um, or this is what it could do, um, that, that could be seen as some form of guarantee or testimonial and those are kind of some of the big things that the regulation um, wants to make sure you're not doing it's so like having the CFP and the series 66 protects you from actually getting like sued for providing no, punish- no. no not at all <laughs> no no so uh, the series 66 and 7 which I don't have anymore are licenses they're securities licenses um, I have the CFP which is a designation. It's, it's by the CFP board is a private organization. It's a nonprofit organization. And so uh, in the state of Massachusetts and, and in most states, you either have to have these certain securities licenses or if you have certain designations like the CFA, the CFP, and there's a couple other ones, you can, you can use that instead of your licenses in order to get registered as an investment advisor. It's just to get registered. That's all it is. It's, and it's not... And they even say it doesn't say anything about your qualifications. It's just it's just a minimum threshold that they require to even going through the registration. There's a whole registration process in order to become a, a registered investment advisor. And so, um, no, that does not protect you from any kind of loss or anything. And actually, that's why. So when we talk about being a fee-only financial advisor, a fee-only financial planner, when we talk about I'm a fiduciary, the reason that's such a powerful term, I'm a fiduciary, is because that's a certain legal standard that you're held to that a another advisor who's operating on commission is not held to. They're held to what's called the suitability standard. So the reason why fiduciary is such a powerful thing is because being a fiduciary means that you are required legally to provide advice in the best interest of your client. And if you don't do that, then you can be held liable. And so... And, and then yeah, I don't want to get in the weeds of what that actually means, but if, if theoretically, if, you, if you're a fiduciary and you provide advice to a client that isn't in their best interest, they can sue you. So 
if you're a fiduciary and then you like screw up, then you like go ask them to buy Bitcoin and you know when they have a low risk tolerance, then they can sue you. Correct. 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 <laughs> Correct. And, correct. And the difference that, the, the difference between that and the suitability standard is that as long as an investment is quote unquote suitable, which means like it's uh, yeah, I guess it's within their risk tolerance, but it's not necessarily like the best thing for them. Then you're okay. And so the fiduciary again, the fiduciary standard is just a higher higher level. And so the the reason why this why when you're operating on commission, uh, kind of a, um, an example for you is let's say you have an insurance product, right? And there there's two insurance products, and one they're both suitable, but one pays a higher commission you're probably going to sell the one with the higher commission. And you can do that because as long as it's suitable, but it's, it might not be the best thing for them, the best product out there might be better products out there for them. And so again, about having the fiduciary standard is about having a, uh, uh, you're providing advice that is always in their best interest. And hopefully that coincides with a compensation arrangement that helps you do that, that provides you the right incentives. But so if I'm not a fiduciary, so if I'm not qualified to, if I'm not legally like uh, qualified to provide investment advice, and then let's say I go and tell someone to buy Apple and they lose money on it. So can they legally sue me for that? No, 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 that, that's investment risk. No, you can't sue somebody for investment risk. And also we're, we're getting, a, uh, it's getting a little confusing because that's, um, <laughs> yeah, that, sorry, something you said, I got caught off. But no, that's just investment risk, whether you're operating as a fiduciary or if you're under the suitability standard and you're just selling, um, you're just selling commission products. You're selling mutual funds with, you know, upfront, um, upfront commissions and those kind of things. Okay. And then how do you acquire your first client, by the way? <laughs> yeah. So on this is, I by no means have the secret formula on this, but it's, it's tough because people do it in a, in a lot of different ways. And again, if you were thrown into a sales oriented role where you were operating on commission, then you were a lot of times cold calling and you were tapping into your natural market as much as possible and basically reaching out to people and, and trying to get them to sit down with you. I mean, there's literally a million different ways people will go about getting clients. For me, what I do, first of all, I don't, operate on commission so that doesn't for me to like cold call people that doesn't really like line up for my value proposition so what i do is and as you've seen on all my social media is i'm constantly posting content and it's so it's content marketing and you're trying to provide hopefully something valuable and you're building trust with your audience while also telling them kind of what you do and hopefully people are watching that and they're seeing that and they're becoming aware of what you do and who you serve and why you do that and then at some point they reach out and schedule a time to sit down and then you can go into more depth on it, exactly what you do and so it's tough it's not easy at all and I've, I've been lucky because I have a good natural market I have a, a lot of connections in kind of the Boston area and so when I launched my firm um, luckily yeah, it was easy for me to spread awareness and so I was able to kind of sit down with people and um, and bring on kind of some of my closer friends and acquaintances and people that were in my natural circle and 
and it's kind of spread from there. And then a lot of times what happens is as you grow your practice, so getting your first clients are definitely the toughest, but you do a good job and what happens is they start to refer people because, um, you know, people tend to hang out with people in similar um, circles, you know, based on preferences and, you know, word of mouth marketing. For sure. Referrals is, especially at the higher end, when you're working with high net worth folks, referrals is definitely the number one uh, source of new clients, I would say, for most firms. Um, but the content marketing is definitely taken off, I think, recently um, for financial, especially independent financial advisors. Would you say that the CFP is the best uh, designation to get to become a financial advisor, or do you think like the CRP, uh, CRPC, and the CFS, like a certified fund specialist, you think that's gonna be better? So I think the CFP is like the gold standard for sure for financial like advisors, financial planners. It's the most practical, and it's kind of, I would say, it's a starting point. Like that's a bare minimum now. Like you have CFP, even though, even though there's still most of the industry is not operating as CFPs, I still think it's they're becoming more prevalent that it's almost like a starting point now and then you have to do even more beyond that but i think the cfp is a great route to start um the other ones are okay um i mean the, the cfp kind of combines some of them so it's it's usually best to just go after the cfp i mean the cfa if you're familiar with the cfa that it's a very prestigious designation um and it's, so it's like the gold it's, standard in like the investment industry Correct, and, it, and I will absolutely attest that it is harder for sure than the CFP. I actually didn't think the CFP was that challenging, but I mean, it's it's still it's it's a good measure of your intelligence. But the CFA definitely is a great measure of intelligence. But actually, I really think that the CFP is more practical than the CFA because you know you can you can be the you can go through all the CFA courses, and it's not going to necessarily make you a better investor. And I think we don't really need more investment advisors. We need more financial advisors or financial planners, people that are focused on personal finance, because as we've talked about in the past, yes, the investing is, is a part of it, but it's only one sixth of what we do. And so you can add a lot of value to people outside of just investments. And so I think, um, I think the CFP is definitely the way to go for sure. And how do you get? How do you go about getting a CFP? Is it like a CFA? Like the CFP is like a four-year exam for which you need a bachelor's degree and uh, four years of ex- no wait, it's a three-level exam for which you need four years of ex- work experience and a bachelor's degree. Is that something similar to that? Yeah, it is. It's um, you have to do certain courses. So yeah, you have to have a bachelor's degree and then you have to do certain required courses to even sit for the CFP exam. Then you take the CFP exam. You have to obviously pass, and then you have to have three years of industry experience to use the designation. So uh, there's definitely there's definitely a little bit of a process there, and then there's continuing education as well. Yeah, and you and you say it's easier than uh, the CFA. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the CFA, the way I've explained it to people is the CFP is like a mile wide and a foot deep whereas a CFA is a foot wide and a mile deep so it's 
the CFA is all investment related and it's much more math oriented and it's concentrated. Uh, so you get really in depth, whereas the CFP covers a much larger, uh, well, much larger breadth of kind of topics, but at a much uh, shallower, shallower level, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. <laughs> but then, uh, and then in all kinds of like client-based businesses where you have clients, well, not like customers, but like clients actually, you're going to have a bunch of and all like, you know, clients that keep getting annoyed over and over again. So how do you deal with that? How do you like personally deal with those clients? Do you have, do you ever have those kind of clients? I'm sorry, say that again? Clients that do what? Wait, so like occasionally like you're going to have one of those clients who's going to be unhappy with your service or who's, uh, who, who claims that uh, what you did was not in their best interest or something like that. You ever like, how do you like deal with those kind of clients? Sure. So I personally haven't um, come across that. And it actually doesn't happen as much as you think because, again, if you have good intentions and you really are trying to do what's in the best interest of your clients, um, it's not going to come up because uh, you're not going to attract those kind of people that are just looking to, you know, get you in trouble or sue you, those kind of things. Um, but I mean, I have had clients fall off, but that's just because, you know, things change and people, again, I operate, my business model is very, very um, flexible. And so I, I've had clients where they're kind of everything is set up and they feel like they got it under control. And so we, we stop working together. It's not, it's not personal, it's, it's business. And so, um, but I haven't had anybody be upset. I mean, the, the, the key is that you're documenting everything and that you are um, following up on things. So you're making sure that, you know, obviously any kind of trades or money movements or any kind of forms that the client needs to sign that, that you're making sure those things are getting done and they're getting submitted. Uh, so just making sure the big thing is always following up on what you say you're going to do. As long as you're doing that, it, it's not and you're documenting it it's really not as big of a deal as it sounds as long again as long as you're really just doing what's in the best interest of the client and when you talk about when you told me that uh if you have more than 100 million in assets under management uh then the sec regulates you and if it's under that uh the state regulates you yep so does that mean that you're basically you're kind of like a fund manager <laughs> Uh, so I do, yeah, so I do manage money for people. Like I, uh, I manage retirement assets. I manage, um, you know, taxable money. If they have it outside of their retirement accounts at work. And so I, so there's a thing called discretion, meaning you can, discretion means you have the authority to trade on someone's behalf. And so I do have discretion. So I manage money at um, TD Ameritrade Institutional, but um, you have to have a limited power of attorney in, or, in order to do that. And so when you have to discre- when you have discretion, there are a lot of regu- again regulatory uh, things that you have to comply to to make sure that you're you know documenting everything and those kind of things. But yeah, I do manage money. Um, so I'm not a fund manager because I'm again I'm using mutual funds. So I'm hiring mutual fund managers or I'm using ETFs or I'm using other things. Um, but I'm also doing ongoing financial planning so yes i am an investment advisor for sure that's part of what i do um but i 
primarily consider myself a financial planner first. And we've talked about this in the past about the way in my investment philosophy is very passive. And so um, it's not, I'm not picking individual stocks. I'm not, I'm not a mutual fund manager who is trying to beat a benchmark. It's about getting people the right exposure for them based on what their goals are and um, based on what they're investing for. And when you said that uh, investing is only uh, one sixth of well, one sixth of what being a financial planner is. So, what are the other five parts? So, what are the yep. other things that you like? You know, teach clients or you know help clients do. Yep, absolutely. So, if you go to the CFP and you uh, board and you look at the six steps for uh, certified financial planner. So, there's retirement planning. There is estate planning, tax planning, investment planning. Um, what are the other two now that I think about it? Uh, protection planning. So making sure that you have the right insurance in place. So the way I the, the way I usually go through the planning process with the clients is our first meeting is usually investment related just because people that's top of mind. So making sure that they are allocated properly across retirement accounts and uh, other accounts so that they have the right asset allocation, that they have the right uh, asset location, they, they're holding the tax efficient assets, the right accounts, those kind of things. Um, then we go through kind of cash flow planning. So that's like your budgeting, understand, understanding where your after tax income is going and where you're spending money on and, and how much are you saving and using to uh, contribute to something that's building your net worth, right? So whether it's paying down debt or it's building up your investment accounts or, or whatever, those kind of things. Um, the third planning, the third meeting is a protection planning meeting. So we do insurance. So we look at a lot of times I work with, um, with couples. So if something were to happen to one of the spouses, could the other person do everything based on what we've planned for them, do they have enough life insurance in place if that were to happen? Also disability insurance, if God forbid you were to get disabled, do you have enough coverage to uh, supplement your lifestyle and continue to save and invest the way you want to? Um, depending on how old they are, long-term care. So looking at, do you want to transfer the risk of uh, nursing home care, those kind of things. Um, looking at, car ins- and do you have the right car insurance? Do you have the right homeowner's insurance? Pretty much all insurance, health insurance, um, and then what else? Estate planning. So, as you get older, even when you're a younger couple, making sure you have, you know, healthcare power of attorney, durable power of attorney. Uh, and I don't actually create the estate planning documents, but making people aware of what they do need or what they should get, and helping them get set up with an estate planning attorney to get if they need uh, trusts, if they need, um, again all these powers of attorneys and uh, healthcare power of attorney. And then also um, tax planning. So again, I'm not a CPA, but I do work with a lot of CPAs to help facilitate kind of our clients that we work with. And so making sure that you're taking advantage of all of your different deductions, that you're taking advantage of pre-tax and after-tax retirement accounts, that you're, depending on where you are in the tax bracket, you're doing taking advantage of conversions if you want to transfer you know, money early in retirement, or maybe you're taking a work sabbatical and you want to have more tax diversification across investment accounts. So there's a lot of things you can, you can do that are not even investment related in order to add value over time because we can't control what happens in the markets. So 
you have to be able to control the factors that you can. <laughs> so they're literally the six parts to financial planning. Yep. There you go. Okay, and then I wanted to ask you. So, uh, so like every day, so CFP basically just does meetings, 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 or something. So it depends. It really depends because there's tons of. I mean, again, I'm a solo advisor. There are practices where they have staffs, and everybody has different roles. I came from a, a larger practice where I was what's called a para planner, where basically you're doing all the back office stuff for the financial advisor who's meeting with the clients. And so I was actually the one doing the financial plan and doing the data entry and doing the, I wasn't selling or I wasn't client facing. I was doing the actual um, planning. And then I would sit down with the advisor and say, here's what we did. Here's what the analysis says. Here's what you should be talking to them about. I mean, now I'm, I'm a solo advisor. I do everything. So I am, I'm doing marketing. I'm doing sales, data entry. I'm doing um everything soup to nuts and so it really depends on what kind of practice you're in um a lot of my time is spent marketing because again um i i'm a solo advisor and i just launched my firm a year ago so it it totally it totally depends and is the main focus of being a financial planner uh on diversification because as you said because as you uh Uh, told me the other uh, the other day that uh, concentration makes you rich, but diversification keeps you rich. So, is the major focus of uh, of the investment part uh, diversification? Uh, yes, for the most part. Um, I mean, we can talk about what diversification really means, but it's. Yes, because we again, I don't know the outcomes of financial markets, and so my philosophy is, again, within a certain, depending on what your risk tolerance is and, and your um, where you are in your investing life cycle, you can get more concentrated. But my philosophy is let markets work for you, stay consistent over time. By having a diversified portfolio you can reduce the amount of risk that you take on, meaning how much your portfolio actually fluctuates, but you can still capture enough market returns. And we, we actually project this out in financial planning software, but you can capture enough market returns to, to accomplish whatever your goals are as long as you start saving and investing early enough. And so people, yeah, people are seduced by the idea of you know, picking individual stocks or picking the new IPO and those kind of things. But when you look at the data and as, and as you always see me post about and just about the actual numbers behind how many stocks are even in existence, you know, over the course of financial markets. And a lot of times, talk about long tails and statistics where the Amazon and the Apples of the world really drive market returns and your The chances that me or anybody is going to pick that next stock are very low, and so this is why it's important to own the market because we don't know what's going to be the next Amazon or Apple, but we have to make sure we have some exposure to it because that's what drives market returns. I see. <laughs> and then, um, and then I remember you talking about this thing called a mega Roth IRA. I mean, I've seen quite a few posts on that, and then it shows that you could uh, invest about six thousand bucks a year and end up as a millionaire by the age of sixty-five or something. Is that really <laughs> yeah, true? I mean, 
Yeah, so, uh, yes, it, at a certain rate of return, of course. Yeah, so the Roth IRA is really flexible. Um, the Mega, we were, we were talking about the Mega Backdoor Roth, that's kind of something else um, within 401ks, but basically the Roth IRA is very a flexible account because um, it allows you to put away after-tax money, meaning money that you don't get an income tax deduction on, but you could then invest that money and it'll grow tax-free for the rest of your life as long as you don't pull it out before age 59 and a half. Um, and so, yeah, if you're, and you can contribute up to currently $6,000 a year, assuming you're below certain income levels. And so, and that's where this concept of a backdoor Roth comes from, because if, if you're over a certain income level, you can't contribute to a Roth IRA, but you can always, you can convert from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. And that's where this concept of the backdoor Roth comes from. So it's, it gets a little technical, but, um, yep, that's what it's all about. So uh, the retirement planning bit is about like 401ks and IRAs and Roth IRAs and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so for me, you know, I actually don't even work with a lot of retirees. I work with kind of high earning professionals and we are looking, we're still looking at these kind of things because for example, with the 401k, so you can contribute up to $19,000 to a 401k. And so if, you, if you're maxing out your 401k, Sometimes uh, these 401ks allow for additional contributions via what's called an after-tax contribution within the 401k, and it allows you to put away a lot more money than just the 19k. Actually, it's uh, up to $56,000 you can put between 56 and 19k. So it allows for a lot more flexibility if you have the cash flow to fund it, and it's a way to add value because if you can put a lot of you can put an additional, you know, um, you know, 30k into the after-tax portion of your 401k. You can do what's called this mega door back, this mega backdoor Roth IRA. <laughs> if, if your 401k allows for in-service distributions, so there's also there's a lot of things that need to fall in place to be able to do it. But if somebody has that opportunity and it makes sense for them based on all their goals and how they're saving and they have enough cash reserve, then you can potentially shift a lot of money into a Roth IRA, which, which is great for flexibility eventually down the road in retirement. And is this out of, I just completely out of curiosity, how do you find high net worth clients? Did they just like pop up or something? <laughs> because uh, I wanted to start a hedge fund in the future and for that I need high net worth clients. So how do you like find them? You don't. <laughs> no, I mean, again, I, I, again, I work with, I wouldn't say I work with high net worth people. I work with high earners. So they're either going to be high net worth at some point down the road, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. But really I'm working with people that I'm investing in. They're invest, they're investing in me by hiring me, but I'm also investing in them because I, I see their, their potential. And I don't even, again, I charge a flat fee. I don't charge based on assets and management, but I, there's only a certain subset of the population that financial advisors can add value to and so you know it's shifted from again if you're charging based on assets there's these are an even smaller portion of the, of the population that you can work with at least the reason why i want to charge a flat fee is because it allows me to work with a, a larger subset but it's still it's still only limited to a certain subset because again if you're if you're not if 
you don't have cash flow at the end of the month or if there's not enough room for me to add value then paying me my fee is not going to make sense to you and so i'll I'll sit down with prospects you know all the time and be like hey you know it's not gonna be worth it for you right now but at this when you hit this point come back and maybe it will be and so it's there i but answer to answer your original question i don't i do not know Well, it's just like the fact that you live in Boston and Boston's like a, you know, a good, like, a business city, a business, completely business-oriented city from, uh, like, something like New York or Philadelphia compared to living, say, in Iowa or something, which is not that big of an economy there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a reason most uh, financial advisors work and live in major cities because people tend to have higher incomes and higher net worths and they can add more value there. So for sure, um, for sure. But also now, I mean, I work virtually, so and I have clients um, in other states. So it's it's also shifting, I would say, be that because of people's um, ability to work virtually, that you can actually work with people all across the country. Um, but in your case, I, I, I can't, so, I'm only allowed to work with people in the United States. I don't know. I don't know Canada's um, securities regulations at all. Um, and you can't sell from. You wouldn't be able to sell from Canada to uh, any U.S. territory. I mean, you have to be registered with, again, either the state or the SEC. But they only oversee um, this country. And then. Uh... How do you, like, what are your tips for a client to find a good uh, financial planner? Is it just someone you agree with? Or do you have, and then, like, because what I've seen is that you've posted a couple of times in your story, or it might be someone else, that you've got to actually look at your financial advisors and financial planners, uh, you know, our stock market returns and their investment returns before actually investing with them so that you actually know that that person who you're going to use as your advisor actually knows what they're talking about. Um, that's a tough one. So I think what, what you're referring to is, you know, we talk about, do you eat your own cooking, right? So do you, and again, investments is only one sixth of what, what we do, hopefully, but I invest the same way that I recommend my clients invest, not the exact holdings, but the exact percentages, because we have slightly different goals and time horizons. But as far as the overall um, philosophy, you know, sticking to low cost, you know, either uh, mutual funds or ETFs and, and getting certain exposure, I'm, I'm investing the same way that I would recommend. And that, believe it or not, is not the case um, across the industry. And you'd be surprised because, again, you don't want to be hypocritical and, you know, maybe selling a certain product because it gives you a commission, but then not using that same product in your own uh, investment portfolio. So I think that's what I was referring to in that case or what you were talking about. Um but as far as how to um, figure out if somebody's right for you, again, I think we all we all have different personalities and we all appeal to different people. So it's not just about what can this person do for me. It's also about is this somebody who I have similar values to? Because again, money is such a important part of our lives, and it's it's really way way more than just numbers. It actually has to do with people's lives and. Know, take care of loved ones and 
kids' education and stuff that is really emotional. So you have to be able to have somebody that it's almost like choosing your therapist or your counselor. It's like somebody that you're going to be comfortable with opening up to because you you can't you can't be hiding things if it relates to your money from your financial planner, you know. So uh, it has to be somebody that you're comfortable talking to. And then uh, what happens like if you're if you say that uh, okay don't buy the stock but then you can't just the client just goes ahead and buys it and loses money on it would you like tell them yeah so that's totally fine um so it depends if that doesn't happen as much as you think because again if you're managing money on a discretionary basis then they're paying you to manage money for them they're probably not going to go out and do it on their own um it doesn't mean anything you know if a client wants to quote unquote speculate on their own um i'll i'll usually recommend that they open their own separate brokerage account not under my advisement and so that's totally up to them i'm not there's i am not held liable at all for that that's that's a non-discretionary purchase on their part um i did not say you know i recommend you to buy this you know again what i'll tell talking about is if they really want to have that kind of fun money account then we limit it to a certain percent of their overall portfolio and you don't ever increase the percentage and you know if you lose all the money in that account then that's it and we just stick to what we're doing in the other accounts um, but that doesn't that doesn't really come up as much as you might think and just wrap up the interview if you had to give some words of advice to uh, to someone who wants to become a financial planner what would they be honestly I would say the future of financial advice is going to be advice centric meaning it's not going to be investment centric. So if you're thinking that you're going to um be the next, you know, big investment manager, I would temper those expectations because it's incredibly hard nowadays especially with the compression to try and justify that in that way. Um we need more people helping people make smart personal finance decisions. um and a lot of that stems from managing behavior um and so understanding human behavior and psychology is going to be actually very important moving forward in the financial advising space and so yes understanding the technical side of things and numbers is really important but if you can understand human behavior not just in others but in yourself um and how you make decisions around money that's going to be really valuable So uh you're saying that the investment management industry is already saturated. Say that one more time. So you're saying that the investment management industry like fund managing and hedge fund and uh, that kind of stuff is already uh, saturated. I would yes, I would say that. Um I don't I mean if you just look at the numbers, you know, the, the amount of mutual funds are shrinking, uh fee compression across the board is shrinking, the amount yet mutual fund managers are charging um there's just been a huge shift to passive investing because we've seen the data right the vanguards of the world and the different passive bet we've seen the data behind how professionals do versus the benchmark and i mean i can pull up the data but it's it's not great i mean over a long enough time period you're you're typically better off just owning the the benchmark um and maybe that'll shift you know as we get less managers and there's more um you know more skilled managers but 
it's t- it's just really tough because you're having the best people compete against the best people, and it's it tends to cancel each other out. So and yeah, I, mean, I don't think it's like the best people against the best people because uh, I know this is going to be a conversation for another day, but. What yeah. mutual fund managers want to do is they want to, you know, in October is like bonus month, so they want to sell off all the loser stocks in September and then make sure that they only hold uh, the winner stocks so that they don't look ridiculous in October yeah, for their no, bonus there's, stock. No, there's, there's a lot of truth to, it's called career risk, where you're trying to manage money in a way to keep your job, not necessarily as a long-term advisor. And it's not their fault a lot of times because in the industry, we've looked at kind of three-year track histories. A lot of advisors will look at three-year track histories. And the problem is, is you really need like a much longer cycle than you think, like probably 10 to 20 years to really evaluate a manager. The problem is, is that that's a really long time. <laughs> and if you've gone 20 years and now you're like, oh, this person's not good at managing money. Well, it's been 20 years. So it's like, (laughs) it's just, and yeah, it's just really hard to identify managers ahead of time. Um, And yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.